As 2023 gets underway, everything looks just a little bit fuzzy. We're trying to figure out how the new Republican-controlled Congress will affect things in Washington, particularly if they follow through on their threats regarding the debt ceiling. After some favorable developments in the Russia-Ukraine conflict last year, the war remains vicious and bloody with no end in sight. Inflation is still a thing, but maybe less of a thing than it was before. Lots of Wall Street firms are warning that a recession is likely this year, but at the same time, there's a pretty good job market out there. It's hard to know what to make of the financial picture. As I said, it all looks a little bit fuzzy and off-center, maybe like some of those pictures you take. Today on River Radio, we'll address both the financial environment and how to get a little better at your own photography. It's Saturday, January 21st. Today, we're putting 2023 in focus financially, and literally. Coming to you from our studios in beautiful Midtown, Marina on St. Croix, bordering the wild and scenic St. Croix River, this is River Radio. I'm Jim Maher. And I'm Gail Knutson. Thanks to our technical director, Matt Quast. Also want to thank Elaine Larson, who handles our webpage, and Laura Lee DiLorenzo for publicity, and of course to Chan Poling in the Suburbs for our theme music. The program is produced by Jim and Gale and presented by the Marine Community Library. The library is located on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary homelands of Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples. On today's program, we'll be talking with Chris Farrell, Senior Economics Contributor for Marketplace on American Public Media and on NPR, and Ross Levin of Accredited Investors Wealth Management. Also, we'll be talking with local photography hobbyist and instructor Carl Wagner. Later on, I'll have an update on local news. Along with those listening on Zoom, welcome to those tuning in to us via the Marine Fan Supporter and Booster page on Facebook, and of course, Thanks to all of you who regularly listen to our podcast. Well, Gail, uh, it was a milestone week here in Marina on St. Croix. For the first time in three years, the smell of lutefisk was in the air. It sure was. And it's the reason I didn't have to do any vocal warming up this morning, because <laughs> I filled up on lutefisk and Swedish meatballs and lefsa and cranberries and coleslaw and all the cookies and everything at the uh, annual Lutefisk, or they call it the Swedish dinner at Christ Lutheran Church here in Marine. It was fabulous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazingly good. Now, listen, I, I don't have the Scandinavian heritage that you have, and I'm always skeptical about this Lutefisk thing, but actually, I think it tastes pretty good. You and loved it. It was good. And yeah. all the other food you mentioned, along with the Swedish beans, which you did not, not mention, which mm -hmm. are awesome. Uh, yeah, it was really something, although it was funny. This was Thursday, and we walked into the church yesterday afternoon. You could still smell it in the air. You could smell it in the air, but I noticed when I just opened up the refrigerator down there, there weren't many leftovers. They got 550 pounds of lutefisk skin, and I'll bet most of it sold. I think they I think sold so. out in previous I, years. Yeah. And I think I read they had 550 people who came to the dinner, so... Yeah, well, worked out perfect. Well, somebody uh, didn't get their lutefisk because I ate at least two pounds. <laughs> well, there was snow to contend with on lutefisk day. Just topping off what's already been a huge snow year for us here. 
And it really makes me glad I purchased that electric snowblower. Man, I love that thing. Yeah, I know. I see you out there. You're all, you, you, you do, you'll do anybody's driveway for free. In fact, he'll pay you. He loves it that much. And for Christmas, I got an e-chainsaw. So I'm, I'm totally thrilled. And the reason I got it, I just got to explain, is I was trying to fire up my gas one this fall and finally got it started in my hands and the whole thing burst into flames while I was holding it. And a neighbor or a friend looked at me and said, I got an idea for you. Therefore, yeah. I, I now have an e-chainsaw. I think that's that was a good move. I'm happy not to see you lighten up gas anymore there. Yeah. Um, a final note to mention is our podcast numbers. Yeah, we aren't up there with programs like the Daily from the New York Times, but we can report that on a regular basis, River Radio ranks in the top 25% of all podcasts. And with some of our episodes, we're much higher than that. And of course, we hope to grow it from here, but I have to say, it's nice to know that as big as the podcast world is, we're at least in the top quartile. Well, it's been more than a year since we've had our first guest with us, but I'm thrilled to have them back again because they always make for an enlightening and entertaining conversation and each has been on our program numerous times. I'm speaking of none other than Chris Farrell and Ross Levin. Chris is an author, economics editor to Marketplace on American Public Media, a regular on NPR, and just really a contributor to the world's understanding of all matters economic. Chris, welcome back to River Radio. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's always fun. Good. And Ross Levin, a local friend of ours, but also founder of Accredited Investment Advisors and a regular contributor to the Star Tribune. Ross, great to have you with us again. Hi, Jim and Gail. Thank you. Hi, Chris. How you doing, Ross? Great. And I know uh, Chris is here in Minnesota. Ross is down in Arizona, you bum. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, Chris, let's begin with uh, the economy right now. I'm curious what you make of the state. I talked about the fuzziness of everything and the talk of a possible recession. Do you think we're headed for that? And if so, what, what would be the triggers for it? Yeah, I'll address your question. But I have to say, I'm still reeling from using the word fabulous and ludifisk in the same sentence. <laughs> I just, I have never, I've never heard that. And it's just something to, to contemplate. I think there's some sort of philosophical lesson there, but <laughs> let's talk about the economy. Um, in terms of the economy, you know, I'm in the, the, the optimistic camp. I think the latest surveys I've been looking at, and Ross, you probably know, know better than I do, but, you know, it's about two-thirds of Wall Street economists, the people that they poll who are, you know, they ask whether or not it's going to be a recession, are saying there's going to be a recession in 2023. There's been a little bit of a moderating of that position recently. Um, and the problem that I still have is we have a three and a half percent unemployment rate and we still have a demand uh, for workers. And you are seeing a lot of layoffs in the high tech sector. There are going to be some layoffs going on in uh, the financial sector. Nonetheless, I think we are an economy that's slowing down and it's definitely slowing down. But there is a good chance we have to have some luck, but there's a good chance that we skirt a recession and we don't have the kind of high unemployment rate that you would, would traditionally associate with a recession. 
Okay. And that's interesting that you mentioned the the layoffs in the tech sector and and some in the financial sector happening. uh, And you don't really see those as a canary in the coal mine that maybe those are more centered on those industries. Well, yeah, this is one of the big questions out there. there, at least so far, if you're looking at them, um, you know, it was not a irrational exuberance by the tech sector. If you go back to the early months of, of the pandemic, the demand for, for digital products, for what the, you know, the digital economy companies were producing, it was off the charts and they hired, they hired a lot of people. And there was a reasonable expectation that the sort of digital economy had taken a big step up. And I remember one of the things that really struck me was from, I'm going to have the group wrong, but the National Association of Grocery Stores. I'm not sure that's exactly the group, but that's that's essentially, and they were saying that, you know, the grocery store owners had completely ignored the 60 plus market because they're not online. We're not going to have to, we don't have to deal with these people. And they had this enormous growth of people 60 years and over going online, ordering their groceries. And that's just Mm. one small example. So a lot of what's happening in the tech sector right now is a pullback because you know what, those 60s plus they're going back to the grocery store. So are a lot of people. Um, and we're doing a lot of things that supposedly we weren't going to do again uh, during, you know, sort of forecast during the height of pandemic. And so I see it as a, as a pullback in an industry. And one reason why it doesn't bother me that much is the signs are that the people who are being laid off are getting jobs fairly quickly. And the reason is take United Healthcare. It's a healthcare company, right? It's a technology company. And now they have the opportunity to, to hire more people, to bring more people in. If you look at so many companies with their IT sector, with their digital uh, presence, it's an opportunity for them to improve their workforce. So it may not quite be the precursor of a recession that we would normally think about. So, Ross, I'm curious, you you obviously um, in the financial world you live in, you deal with a, a lot of uh, big companies in that industry. So what are you hearing on your end? Well, I think that that there I, I agree with Chris um, completely as it relates to the job market. And I will say that, you know, one of the flaws that we uh, usually have is that we don't consider what the base case is. So, for example, if Microsoft hired 50,000 people, uh, from you know 2010 to 2012, I mean, I'm sorry, from 2020 to 2022, and then lays off 12,000. Uh, that's a big number, but it's based on a, a incredible hiring. I, w- I will say that that people, uh, what I'm experiencing is that especially at the um, CEO level, uh, I think people are less confident. Uh, than they've been in the past, but they're not necessarily good prognosticators for the future. So we are seeing um, cutbacks. We are seeing capital uh, expenditures being cut back. So I think that that people are anticipating uh, a slow slowdown in the economy. I don't like using the word recession, Jim, because I think that that words can be inflammatory. And so the question is, how does this climate affect you as an individual and how do you make decisions based on this climate? If you're not going to lose your job, uh, if you're still uh, able to put money to work, what do you do irrespective of what the, uh, you know, the NBER calls the, uh, the economy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. And, yeah. and even to the extent that there's been discussion of a recession, I don't think, anybody's anticipating it would be anything like very deep or 
serious, um, the question would be, would it be something long lasting or are we going to be in more of this sort of malaise type economy that we've had for so many years? Right, right. I agree with you. Yeah. I will say, you know, again, you know, that one of the things that the most notable thing I think that's happened is uh, this Secure Act. And Chris wrote an interesting column about it. Um, and Chris can probably talk a little bit about it. But that that is going to be one of the things that's going to affect all your listeners. And uh, even more important, I think, from an investment planning perspective this year is tax planning. Get Get your tax planning early because there's a lot of things that you can do in this environment. Okay, well, we'll talk about that. And well, and since uh, Ross raised that, let's talk about the Secure Act. Now, this the, the Secure Act 2.0 or Secure 2.0 uh, was part of a, a bill passed by Congress right at the end of December, and it all has to do with retirement planning, basically. Uh, Chris, do you want to just talk a little bit about any of the highlights of that? Yeah, so it, it was a real bundle of, of of changes, and most of them were, were for the good. So, for example, um, one of the things is in there if companies want to, and I'm and any uh, CEO out there, I hope that you do do this, is you can set up for your employees an emergency savings account. Uh, it's linked to your 401k for you, know, you basically use the same technology um, because you really don't want your employees to be tapping into their 401k, their 403b during tough times. And for many employees, that's the only pool of savings they have. So it's, uh, it's, it's a really nice piece of legislation. They've also uh, uh, improved the automatic enrollment, which has made a dramatic difference in terms of how many people are uh, enrolled in retirement savings plans. They've also made it even easier for people who work part-time to join into the retirement savings plan. And then they've increased the age of, um, and this is what will impact, I think, some of, quite a few of your listeners. They've increased the age of um, when you require minimum distributions, when you have to take them, and it's age seventy three now, right, Ross? That's that's what it's yeah. Been pushed well, out this for. year this year is actually a free pass, but if you were born in nineteen fifty nine uh, or earlier, it's going to be age seventy three, and if you're uh, born in nineteen sixty, it's going to actually be all the way out to age seventy five. So at that point, you know, and that makes a big difference. And there, you know, where Ross was talking about taxes, then you have to really tap. This is one of those things where I say work with your tax advisor to make sure that in terms of when you're dealing with required minimum distributions with the changes of the age, that you're very conscious of the tax impact. So, Ross, do you want to you mentioned taxes as well and tax planning. Any other specific things people should be looking at? Yeah, I think that that there's a few things. First of all, the SECURE Act, I just want to mention there's over 100 changes in the uh Secure Act, and so we should all be grateful that Chris didn't go through every one of them. But um, well, if you want me to, right? I'll be our next show. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah. um, from a tax planning standpoint, here's here's some things that I think are really important to consider. One is uh, rather than just be depressed that your investment account is down from last year, uh, if you have uh, investments that were in taxable accounts, make sure you take losses. Um, and one of the things that that uh, to consider is that you you can do you know tax swaps essentially. So if you own an S and P 500 fund and it's down for the year, you can swap it into something similar but not identical. And you want to bank those losses because even though this is what this was a bad market last year and this year's market, we don't know what's going to happen. Eventually, markets come back, and so you don't want those losses to go to waste. 
Secondly, um, tax brackets have expanded quite a bit because of inflation, and so this could be a good year to look at Roth conversions. Roths are fantastic for two things. One, if you're going to be in a higher tax bracket in retirement, or if you want kids to inherit uh, an asset. Roths are fantastic to inherit. Um, as Chris mentioned, you don't necessarily want to automatically delay your retirement distributions. You want to kind of do some tax bracket planning to see whether you can use up low tax brackets by actually taking money out of your retirement plan. Um, and you don't want low tax brackets to go to waste. So you want to kind of look at a two or three year forecast of taxes. Um, another thing that, that has not changed, even though required minimum distributions uh, have, you're able to take them later, you can still do qualified charitable distributions from your retirement plan if you're over 70 and a half and no one who's over 70 and a half should really be making uh, charitable contributions uh, from assets. They should almost, almost everyone should be using those qualified charitable distributions from your IRA. You can do that up to $100,000 a year. And that's how you can uh, support the Marine Community Library. That's um, right. That's right. But that's a good, I want to, I think that's a really good one because I really feel like that's an underused strategy that, and, and maybe to explain a little more, people have the uh, distribution from their IRA, say, go directly to the charity rather than taking it themselves, having to take the taxes on it and all that, and then making the distribution or then making the contribution to the charity. So yep. it's a great way to, to you still get your tax write-off, but you also avoid a capital or a um, distribution tax. Well, and, and I think, Jim, to the point is that a lot of people, because of uh, bracket creep and things like that, won't, will not be itemizing deductions. So the advantage of using the, uh, the qualified charitable distributions is that, A, it reduces your required minimum distribution amount if you, need, if, if you are in that place, but otherwise it, it takes money that would, would be taxable to you and, it, and essentially makes it uh, tax-free to the charity. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So uh, thanks for bringing that up. Okay. Um, Let's. I want to talk about the Federal Reserve because they probably had the biggest impact of anybody last year on the economy, uh, on the markets, certainly, as, as the markets reacted fairly negatively to the fact that interest rates were going up um, and there, things weren't so liquid anymore. So, Chris, now the Fed has just finished raising interest rates, I think, at the fastest pace in history over the past nine months. What do you think is left for them to do this year? Well, you know, it's really interesting. The Fed governors and the Fed presidents, like Neil Kashkari, head of the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis, you know, they're all out there giving talks and they're all talking from the same playbook. And their playbook is that we're still not satisfied. We're still cautious. Um, you know, we, we are going to have to raise our rates some more. So they're talking a very tough game. And I think it's partially reflecting that they uh, were badly burned. They underestimated, as a lot of people did, they underestimated how high inflation would go. But, you know, I find this interesting where if you look at inflation in 2022, it's really six months. It peaked in June. And since June, it's been coming down. So my guess is what's happening here is a psychological game with Wall Street and investors where the Fed will probably slow down its rate of increase. It was doing three quarters of a percentage point, half a percentage point. It'll probably do a quarter percentage point. Go ahead. Um, and it just wants to make sure that it doesn't get a reputation of having 
eased too early. And that is why I think it is, you know, as, as Ross was saying, it's a, it's a really good way of looking at it. Um, one of the reasons why there's so much of a forecast of recession is because the Fed typically is tight for too long. So it's a reasonable forecast, but recession may be the wrong word. The economy is going to slow down. And it is definitely slowing down anyway. Inflation is also coming down. You know, one of the things I have sort of been thinking about the other day is five years from now, when economic historians look back, they're probably going to talk about a temporary increase in inflation, the period of 2022. And inflation is down after that brief burst. All right. Well, I hope that is correct. Um, we're talking to Chris Farrell. Uh, Public Radio's economics guru and financial advisor, Ross Levin. So, Ross, um, one thing is uh, interest rates, I mentioned, have come up a lot in the past year. So where does that leave the idea of putting money into bonds? It, when when you invest in bonds and rates go up, you're, you're losing value on your uh, principal. Uh, where do things stand now as far as putting money into bonds? Well, you know, Bonds are actually qu quite attractive right now, Jim. I mean, this is the first time since the Twins played in the Metrodome where you can get, you know, <laughs> decent yields on the on bonds. And so um, for those people, first of all, uh, who want cash or who, who need liquidity, you're going to get, you know, close to 4% on uh, online savings accounts. You're going to get 4.5% on one-year treasuries. Uh, so there's a lot of good places to put your money. If you're living off of your portfolio, you know, there there was this old thing called the 4% rule where you could spend 4% of your portfolio every year and try to keep pace with inflation. Well, that, that number is actually easier to hit when bonds are, uh, you know, when high-grade corporate bonds are paying 6% instead of 6 tenths of a percent. So um, bonds bonds are attractive, but I will say that, again, people underestimate time horizons. And so short-term your biggest risk is volatility. Long-term, your biggest risk is inflation. So you still want to have a combination of stocks and bonds. And one of the things that's, that happens from a year like last year is that prospective returns go up. So what we expect to get from investments in the future is higher today than it was a year ago. And Ross, on previous shows, you've talked about I-bonds and brought that concept to us because they were paying, uh, you know, at the time, astounding interest rates compared to anything you could get out there. Uh, what do you feel about I-bonds today? Well, they're still attractive. They're paying over 6%. What's interesting about I-bonds is that there's there's two pieces. There's the inflation rate and a fixed rate that they give. And so when, when the I-bonds were paying 9%, the fixed rate was at zero, but now you actually get a little bit of a credit uh, on the fixed rate. So you could argue that if you're going to be a long-term holder of, of I-bonds, they might be more attractive now than they were even a year ago with uh, with the 9% interest rates. Treasuries again are attractive. What's what's unusual about this market, and this is, you know, Chris is, you know, when we talk about recession or things like that, what's unusual about this market is that long-term bonds are yielding less than short-term bonds. And so that that's a signal of something. It's either a signal of a slowdown in the economy or it's a signal that at some point they're expecting the Fed to ease interest rates. Now, I am not of the mind that the Fed's going to be cutting interest rates anytime soon. I think we're going to see just a, a decrease in increases. But I don't. I, I think if we're people are hoping to see a, a Fed rate cut, I don't think that's going to happen this year. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I would agree with that. Yep. Okay, that's that's uh, good. But I do want to just piggyback very quickly on sure. I bonds. I think I bonds are just, you know, for people who are saving 
long term. You know, iBond is is designed for for really for sort of your classic middle income household for their savings, and it's really a terrific investment vehicle for them. And your dollar that you put into an I-bond is protected against the ravages of inflation over time, because even if inflation is running at 2%, you know, as Ross was saying, you know, 2%, 3% inflation, it does erode the value over time. So I-bonds, whether the rate comes down or not, I-bonds are a really good value for many households. Um, okay, so uh, look into that. That's something, you know, look it up online because that's how you do it. You um, you, you work with the Treasury Department directly to uh, put your money to work in I-bonds. Hey, Chris, I, I'm just curious. I, I know you, you you cover all sorts of facets of the economy, and I, I was curious to ask you a couple questions about the labor force. And first of all, one is the work from home movement. There's a lot of discussion about when our uh, companies going to force people to come back? Can companies force people to go back to work at the office full time? What do you think is happening there? So I think there's a couple things happening. One is the technology has existed for a long time for work from home. But, you know, the numbers are squishy, but, you know, somewhere between two and 10% of the workforce was, was, you know, able to work from home. Then we get the pandemic, you're up to half of the office workforce is working from home. You know, people are not going to go back to the office the same way. If you look at Disney, it was interesting. If I have this right, so Disney said, you know, you got to come back four days out of a week. A number of companies who have made these strong statements about we want the workers to come back, it's three days a week, four days a week. I have yet to see any of the major companies who have put out the edicts about coming back saying five days a week. So it's a real shift in terms of the worker. And, you know, even if we the economy slows down and power shifts a little bit more toward the employer, I just had this feeling that this is a real shift in the way people work is highly efficient. Uh, and, you know, I find myself, you know, just in my own, sometimes when I have to just do a lot of thinking, a lot of writing, I'm just, you know, sometimes it's just easier to stay at home. Other times when I want to be talking to people, exchanging ideas, being more in, in, uh, in a work environment, I'll go to the office. And so I think this is, you know, we're still trying to figure it out. But it's probably somewhere around people will be end up going to the office three, four days a week uh, and working out of the home one to two days a week. And my other labor related question is the proposed rule change from the Biden administration that would bring an end to non-compete clauses. Now, I don't know if this will actually happen, but why do you think this is important? What impact would it have? And do you think it might happen? So I think it's incredibly important. Uh, I think so there's um, there's these wonderful economic histories looking into uh, why did Silicon you know why did Silicon Valley become Silicon Valley, and one of the reasons that a lot of the economic historians and economists have looked at is California you couldn't enforce non competes, and so you had a labor market where all these skilled people were able to move from firm to firm to firm, and the non compete which came out of things like the financial services industry and there's some good reasons why you would have a non compete and for certain executives. I mean, now where you're you're saying to um, 
workers who work at a, you know, at a fast food restaurant, that they have to sign a non-compete, that people who work for janitorial services, they have to uh, sign a non-compete. And this is a way of holding down wages. So I actually, you know, I'm in the camp that look, I think that people should take their skill, their knowledge to whomever wants to hire them. Hey, and, yeah. and, and that's just the nature of the beast. And, um, you know, I think there are certain industries that actually have a reasonable case to make. There are certain levels within a company, maybe a reasonable case. But overall, I'm in favor of the non-competes. I do think that uh, there are enough industries that don't want to let go of this tool, that there will be a lot of lawsuits. And it's unclear to me whether it'll actually go through. And uh, Ross, one last question for you is, um, as we are looking at the start of the year here, any other last uh, pieces of advice you'd like to pass on to people of what they should be thinking about as they go into this year with their portfolios? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's uh, a couple different things to think about. But before I say that, Jim, I just want to let you know how annoyed I am with you because you kept asking me about Tesla and I was finally right on it and you never asked me about Tesla again. So. <laughs> I, yeah, well, I, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and, and yes, and I, 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 I didn't disagree with you, by the way. And you uh, okay, but it, it took me two years and a lot of money to be be right on it, though. So anyway, um, I think that a couple different things. This is going to be a choppy year. We've already had a good uh, start to the year. I think that uh, I would stress: don't give up on international stocks. The last ten years were really good for U.S. stocks. I wouldn't be surprised if the next ten years are better for international stocks. We're seeing dividend yields twice of what uh, US uh, dividends are. Now, international stocks normally have higher dividends, but that's still uh, a pretty attractive number. Uh, and I would also say that for those of you that were discouraged and are accumulators, just remember that that uh, try to focus on the number of shares you keep buying each month rather than the value of the account, because over time, that's what's going to matter. And over time, markets rebound over the short term. It's They're very unpredictable. All right. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's always great having you on. Uh, and and uh, thanks again uh, for spending some time with us this morning. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, yeah. Gail. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. All right. Chris Farrell, Senior Economics Contributor for Marketplace and on NPR, of course, frequently, and Ross Levin, Financial Advisor and Columnist. Before we continue with our get next guest, a couple of follow-ups on previous River Radio guests to tell you, uh, or just to bring you up to date. Back on our December 3rd River Radio show, I talked with Kelly Tope, founder of Farmist Day in Lindstrom. That's a sanctuary for abused and neglected farm animals. Kelly sent an update on a couple of her furry residents that we chatted about on that show. Timothy, the totally blind cow, is still happily going about his life at Farmist Day, and Kelly says, has been loving the cold weather. His best pal and pasture partner is Mags, a cow born with spinal deformities. And Blossom the goat, who was believed to have escaped from a live market and was found wandering South St. Paul with a $350 price tag in her ear, has a new little pal to share her pasture with, Lilibet a very friendly, outgoing one-year-old Nigerian dwarf goat who was found tied to a tree with a rope embedded around her neck. Lilibet also has a contagious disease, but Blossom has the same disease, so the two can share Blossom's pasture together. And that pasture, by the way, has an eight-foot fencing because Blossom can actually jump about that high. 
So anyway, Pharmacy Day is a nonprofit and always looking for funding and volunteer help. You can find their contact info on our show page. Also on our December 17th program, I spoke with Matthew Scherer, the contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, who wrote an extensive piece about cardboard's ubiquitous role in our society. Well, funny enough, another interesting story about cardboard popped up in the Atlantic in the past week. This one about cardboard shortcomings, specifically the old technology of cardboard pizza boxes. You may not have thought about it much, but it's a 60-year-old technology. And for pizza connoisseurs, the box really has its shortcomings. The article is titled, You Don't Know How Bad the Pizza Box Is. We have a link to that article on our show page if you want to expand your cardboard scholarship. I'm happy to have Carl Wagner on River Radio today. Many of you know Carl from his stunning photos of birds and other wildlife that he frequently posts on the Marine Facebook page. Carl is a Marquette, Michigan native who worked in the high-end audio retail business before moving to the Stillwater area and joining a Minnesota-based satellite TV service in the 90s. Carl pursued photography first as a casual hobby, but with the advent of digital cameras, he became much more serious about it. Besides shooting photos, he teaches photography at the Marine Mills Folk School. Carl, welcome to River Radio. Well, thanks, Jim and Gail, for your kind invite to be on your program today. Well, when did you first realize that you love photography? And you got to tell us, what was your first camera? Well, that's a good question. Um, I was just got married. I was working full time and attending uh, school also. And I was basically busy 80 hours a week and I needed some relief. So I um, bought a Canon A1, which was a very advanced camera for the time, and started shooting photography. I'd go out and buy two rolls of film twice a month, shoot my 72 shots, and I'd make the trip to the one-hour photo uh, development place and um, come back after grocery shopping, picking up the images, and be greatly disappointed. Oh, if and, you remember and, those days, you'd get, you know, your little packet of photos and you'd go through them and you go, oh, oh. And you well, I remember those days, you bet. One or two that would work out. But uh, what I found was that it was a great uh, relief activity from all the other stuff that I was doing. So you do a lot of wildlife photography, which I assume is primarily what you do now. And when I think of wildlife photography, you know, one word comes to mind and that's patience. Um, patience, even when you've got mosquitoes all over you, but you're sitting there stock still so you can get the photo. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about patience and wildlife photography. Well, it seems to go in a half hour cycle. If you uh, walk into a location, uh, let's say we're going to William O'Brien to shoot at the park, um, you'll walk into a location. And if you park yourself for about a half hour, almost always something will happen that you can take a picture of. Uh, other than that, you're walking through very slowly. Um, it's always a good trick to look behind you as you walk along the pass, because sometimes there's uh, an image you can capture behind you. So what you're saying is, is sometimes you'll, you'll walk in and you'll just pick a spot and just stay still and wait for the, the picture to come to you? Yes, absolutely. Huh. 
Okay. So do you have a favorite photo that you've taken or um, a favorite story about how you captured a great photo? Well, one of my first photos is still my favorite. Uh, I got my brand new camera um, and I went out and there was a gardener snake in the front yard. So I took a picture of the gardener snake and I took the pictures to the development, got them back and was greatly disappointed because they were all pictures of me standing up, looking down at the uh, snake. About a week later, I I took the camera out again, found a different gardener snake. But this time, I laid down on the ground and shot the snake through the through the grass. And that's when I realized that uh, getting the story or telling the story is a lot more involved than just snapping the picture. It's um, finding the best perspective and the power of that shot when I got it back was just so immensely different than the first shot that I took. So that created a kind of a lifelong passion of um, shooting wildlife locally. Um, often I just walk outside my door, walk down to the river, high bridge area and uh, capture images my goal is to make them interesting. That's my that's my mantra. Um, they're all about storytelling, uh, pictures and and film too. I once had a um, instructor um, tell me never take a picture just standing straight like you're doing because they're all they're high, they're low. You got to get down. You got to get in something. So good advice there. You recently posted. Um, a picture on the Marine Facebook page titled Roadkill Turkey Dinner with an eagle looking rather dominant over a dead turkey. So how how did you capture that? I'm assuming you were driving by and saw that. Well, in the wintertime, I, um, since I don't necessarily want to walk through the snow or it's too cold, I will roam the uh, farmlands in my car and the farmers have turned their farmlands into the world's largest bird feeder and rodent feeder, which attracts predatory birds, which sit along the tree lines along the, along the um, farm fields. Mm -hmm. In this case, I was coming home uh, from the marine area, and there was a um, wild turkey that had obviously been hit by a car, and the eagle was sitting on it. So... I very slowly pulled my car up, rolled down the window, and captured that image while sitting in the driver's seat of the car. So what are, what are you using for a camera these days and, and um, <clears throat> lenses for something like that? Well, I have an enthusiast camera. When I retired, I wanted to buy the best camera that I could afford, and I ended up spending twice that amount. Uh, I ended up with a Panasonic G9 um micro four-thirds camera and i have a couple lenses but the one i shoot wildlife with is a 100 to 400 millimeter which uh, because of the smaller sensor uh 35 millimeter equipment would be a 200 to 800 millimeter lens hmm. so tell me something about listening what role does listening play when you're out shooting in nature do you listen for anything and then spot it? Does that, or is it no, all a visual art? No, I've tried a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that I found uh, extremely helpful is I have a um, bird ID 
uh, app on my phone. Mm -hmm. So as I walk to, let's say, William O'Brien, um, last fall I went out with that app. And even though it was very late in the fall, I found 26 different um, varieties of birds out there. So are you identifying them when you hear them or are you playing that so the bird hears the sound and calls back? Well, some photographers will do that to try to call the bird in. I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, what I look for is uh, a breed of bird that maybe I, I haven't shot. Um, it's ID'd on the phone. Uh, I put a shotgun mic on my uh, phone so I can get some directionality. And then I'll spend about a half hour trying to track the bird down to get a picture of it. I'm speaking with photography hobbyist and instructor Carl Wagner. Carl, can you share some basic tips for just Joe and Jane photographer out there on how to take better pictures of family, uh, your travels, flowers, or that thousand piece puzzle that's sitting on your kitchen table that you want to show someone? Yeah, there's a couple things you can do that would um, increase the storytelling power of your photography. One is to just fill the frame. Um, often people will do what I call a grab shot. You see a flower in the field, you take the picture. But what you need to do is to fill the frame with that subject or that flower um, to get the most power out of the image. Uh, sometimes it's uh, more powerful rather than just shooting the whole barn uh, in a field to find the barn door with the texture and the colors and shoot just the door hinge on a barn, fill the frame that way, which couldn't tell a very powerful story. So can you talk a little bit about the use of natural light? People just go out and, for instance, if you're shooting a, a picture of a friend, you don't want the sun behind them because you'll only see a silhouette. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about how light plays a big role in your photos? You can greatly improve your picture of, of people's subjects uh, by making sure the light source is on your back. So let's say you're shooting a natural light picture inside the home. Uh, often it's just convenient to line everyone up in front of the windows and, and shoot the picture that way. But instead, it is much more uh, effective to put the photographer in the windows with the light source on his back and shoot into the room. You'll get much better lighting on your subjects. A lot of us are shooting now with um, smartphones. And so um, that's a lot different than what you're doing. But what are your thoughts about photography from those new model smartphones like the iPhone 14 Pro? Well, there's so many uh, image capture devices out there. Um, the technology on the phones is getting much, much better. Uh, the thing about uh, cell phone photography is uh, it's an incredible value for what you get. When you're building a billion phones, the cost of um, very advanced technology is relatively cheap to the consumer. And you can do a lot of things with a cell phone today. Um, one of the things that I'd recommend, though, is uh, on the cell phone that you do a little bit of photo editing with your uh, cell phone. Mm -hmm. There's a great product out there called Snapseed, which is free 
virus-free as best I can tell. It does a good deal of um, uh, editing capability and with a little bit of uh, pushing yourself through the learning curve on it, you can greatly enhance your cell phone photography. You have a program called Recycle Your Camera that provides cameras for kids. I want to talk a little bit about that and also about um, your kid photography classes first. So how did you start and when did you start your Recycle Your Camera program? Well, I started when I retired. I was looking for a retirement give back program. I went to a TEDx uh, event at the Stillwater Library called Photography for Change. And as I sat there and listened to everything that was going on, the thought struck me that everyone's shooting with their cell phones today, and almost everyone has a camera or two sitting in the bottom of a drawer that they spent a lot of money for and that they're not using anymore. Could we use that? So I put the two thoughts together. And I now run photography classes through the Marine Mill Folk School for young adults, nine to 14 years old. Um, they attend the class. They choose a camera that I've refurbished because I collect those from people. And at the end of the class, they have their own camera, which keeps them shooting even after the class ends. Wow. That And you've been doing that at Marine Mills Folk School for a while. You've had several classes there for kids. And um, now you've got an adult photo class coming up on February 4th. So right. did you get a lot of requests for that or did you just decide to make the leap for adults? No, I was really focused on my uh, kids photography class, but uh, the folks from Marine Mills Folk School said, hey, you know, there's some interest there. And I thought it'd be another way to generate a little bit of revenue for my kids class. So a friend of mine, Nick Gorski, uh, we both graduated from Marquette High School in 1971, same class. I met him in town one day. And uh, we kind of discussed this and we're putting together the class for uh, beginning photography for adults. And this beginning photography for adults, that is what you bring your own camera for that. And I think I saw you say that you don't want any smartphones in this. You want 35 right. millimeter cameras right? or, or digital for, cameras, I should say. A digital camera. This is camera. for digital camera. Yeah. Folks, digital, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, well, interesting. So, um, so tell me one last question here on your class with your kids. So what's the takeaway for the kids? What do you see from the first moment they walk in till they're done with the class and going off? What, what did they leave with and what kind of changes do you see in them when they're shooting? Well, what I would say is I get um, students from all types of attitudes coming into the room from, you know, my grandma bought me this folded arm sitting at the table to uh, someone who's really interested in photography and wants to learn. So I deal with all of them. Um, and one of the ways I, I get them involved is I allow them to choose their own camera. In other words, they're empowered when they come into the class to choose their own camera. Uh, once they get the, the camera in their hands and they learn basically how to operate it, um, most of those kids are off and running and um, take the lesson well 
And even after uh, the class ends, many of the students go on to um, shoot uh, a lot of photography. I had one student who um, was somewhat challenged from their background. They um, took the class and ended up being the sports photographer for the high school when they got into the high school. Huh. Well, one more question after I said I was had one more question, but this is the last question. I'll say recycle your camera. That is a program where we, um, we can uh, contribute our camera to your program. How do we do? How does anybody go about if they have two cameras sitting at home and they want to get them to you? Well, yes, rather than throw them in the in the landfill, uh, you simply send me an email, Carl, C-A-R-L, at RecycleYourCamera.com. Um, we'll find a way to make the exchange. Uh, I then take your, your camera. Uh, I refurbish it with new batteries and flashcards and chargers and um, use those in class to give away to students. Super program, Carl. Thanks so much for uh, joining us this morning. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Carl Wagner is an amazing photographer. Besides occasional displays at local venues, you can find his fabulous photos on the Marine Facebook page. We've got his contact info on our River Radio show page. Yeah, we, we were fortunate to have a display of Carl's work at the library here late last year, and I believe his work is still up at the Christ Lutheran Church in Marine, so check it out. Uh, Gail's got the news coming up in just a minute. There's a lot going on and what continues to be a busy winter in these parts, but first let me remind you that River Radio is brought to you by the Marine Community Library, and I'm really excited about everything we have on tap this winter and spring. We got it started on Thursday night. Former Marine resident Dennis Reynolds, an urban designer and artist, talked about how public art and placemaking enhance our quality of life. He really had a great stimulating talk, and we have it recorded. You can watch the replay on Zoom. Uh, just go to the library webpage. Our next program, live program, is on Thursday, February 16th at 7 p.m. It's about the adventure of biking in Europe, and your presenters will be none other then Gail and me. So if you don't get enough of us on River Radio, you can watch that program. We'll talk about our 5,000 plus miles of biking across a number of routes in Europe and how you can prepare for such an adventure. That's on February 16th. You can come down to the Village Hall or watch it on Zoom live or recorded. And Marine Documentary Night is back on the first Thursday of February, and that's Groundhog Day. We'll be screening a wonderful, uplifting documentary called Mission Joy, Finding Happiness in Troubled Times. The focus of the documentary is the friendship between the late Bishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa and His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. These are two giants in the spiritual world who, despite all of the troubles and challenges they faced in their own lifetimes, know how to find joy and a lot of laughs in their lives. Joining us for a short talk and Q&A after the screening will be Dr. Mike Klein, Associate Professor and Program Director of Justice and Peace Studies at the University of St. Thomas. Mike teaches courses in leadership for social justice, active nonviolence, qualitative research, and art for social justice. 
And just one thing to mark on your calendars, on Saturday, March 11th, we're going to have our first Marine Community Library fundraising concert in four years. Our old pal, John Gorka, who was scheduled to perform for us in 2020 until COVID hit, is back on the schedule. So March 11th, mark that down, watch for ticket information. And now on the news, William O'Brien will not be closing the lower part of their park this spring as previously planned. The state park has pushed back planned construction and upgrades until after Labor Day when they will be undergoing work to bring additional accessibility accessibility and updated amenities to the park, including the Riverway Campground, Riverside Group Camp, Riverside Trail, and the Mondale Day Use Area. The lower section of the park east of Highway 95 will be closed from shortly after Labor Day until the fall of 2024. A long drawn out legal dispute between the City of Marine and John Narusis, who operated a short term rental property at 801 Pinecone Trail, ended with a judgment in the city's favor this week. After the court ruled in June of 2022 that the St. Croix River property could not be operated as a short-term rental without a license from the city, Marine alleged that the property, often referred to as the castle, had again been listed for rent. The city district uh, judge... The city asked District Judge Douglas Meslow to issue a contempt citation against Narusis for ignoring the court's order. This past Wednesday, January 18th, the court ruled in the city's favor, granting a motion for contempt against Narusis. In addition, Judge Meslow awarded the city all costs and attorney fees with the amount subject to the judge's approval. The status of Wilder Forest, uh, the sale has has not changed. The Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership told River Radio it continues to move ahead and still intends to purchase the property from the Wilder Foundation, but that it is still making decisions on its next steps. In a recent letter sent to area residents, the Catholic Youth Partnership laid out more details of its plans, invited feedback, and stated that, quote, we are committed to being an asset to your community, unquote. In the meantime, River Grove's uh, school's latest communication provided on January 10th says its highest priority and best solution is a lease extension at its Wilder location to carry through the 2023-24 school year. Wilder previously indicated that once the lease is up on June 30th, River Grove must move out. River Grove says it continues to pursue temporary solutions within a short distance of its current location. We expect more details to come to light in the coming weeks, so stay tuned for further updates. The Marine Fire and Rescue Department is getting some guidance from local resident Karen Poole. Karen is an instructor in functional mobility and will be offering a free functional mobility lab for members of the Fire and Rescue Squad to help them better prepare for the rigors of their volunteer roles. The Marine Mills Folk School has some new classes to offer in 2023, including beginning chair caning, how to make a turkey wing broom, 
and West African drumming. And of course, don't forget to register for Carl Wagner's new photography class for adults that we talked about today on River Radio called Basic Digital Photography. That class takes place on Saturday, February 4th from 1 to 4.30. Marine Mills Folk School also hosts weekly and monthly free community events like Knit Night, Dare to Repair Mending, Open Carving Gatherings, and Bluegrass Jam Sessions. You can find it all at Marine Mills Folk School org. Scandia is hosting its 18th annual Winterfest on Saturday, February 4th. Start your day at the Community Pancake Breakfast put on by the Scandia Marine Lions from 8 to 11 a.m. There will be lots of family activities, including a chili cook-off, coop tournament, medallion hunt, a snow sculpture contest, and more. Go to our show page for a link to all activities. And for you stargazers out there, meteorologist Mike Lynch will be coming to Scandia for a night skies presentation. You can join Mike at Gamel Garden on Saturday, January 28th. His program begins at 6 p.m. Well, it's great to be back from our winter break, and now we are returning to our every other week schedule between now and May. Our next show is Saturday, February 4th at 9 a.m. We'll have another great lineup of guests and more local news updates, including any new developments with the Wilder Forest River Grove School Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership situation. Thanks again to our guests, Chris Farrell, Ross Levin, and Carl Wagner. We take you out with the suburbs. Join us again in two weeks. And until then, remember, you heard it right here on River Radio.